Hi, I'm Callie. And I'm Rachel. And we are Pelvic Service Announcement. We got a doozy for y'all today. I did not realize how complex. When I like threw this episode out there, I was like, oh, let's just talk about this. And then my brain hurt doing all the research. Peeing is so complicated. Peeing is so complicated. <laughs> and it's because they've like, in the last 20 years, they're like, no, it's even more it's even, complicated. Yeah. We really, it's, um, there's so much. I was like trying to remember what the periaqueductal gray, aqueductal gray does in the brain. Like Couldn't all the, from these research articles. I was like, what is a muscarinic? <laughs> I was just like so lost what does these things do again and it was like talking about different neural control pathways which is like haunts my nightmares and but so many things in here don't worry because we're not gonna we're gonna try to make it more you do not need to know yeah you don't you don't need to know that but what in the world are we talking about we are talking about the actual physiology behind urination or micturition as you might hear it called um this is you know the phases of bladder filling and storage versus elimination and what happens between all of those reflexes and all of those neurotransmitters that tell us to go pee and how to pee and let me tell you it is a lot more complicated than pulling your pants down and sitting on the toilet holy smokes this was so much information yeah this was a lot of information so urination is involuntary in infants and young children until the age of like three to five um that's you know why we have diapers oh my gosh we have the same article Did you? i was like that is literally the abstract to the article yes it I is pulled. Great. So that being said, let's tell you about our main source for today's episode. This is called The Neural Control of Micturition, and it was published by Fowler, Griffiths, and DeGroote in 2008, I believe. Yeah, 2008, um, in the Natural Review of Neuroscience. So um, lots of really good information in here. If you do want to know more about the periaqueductal gray, you can absolutely look this article up. But um, so yeah, so urination is completely involuntary in um, children up until about the age three to five. That's typically when we start potty training and when we start to see that voluntary voluntary regulation. Um, lots of different levels in the brain, in the spinal cord, lots of different neurotransmitters, lots of things that affect this process. Um, And so they even go on to say, you know, diseases or injuries of the nervous system in adults can cause this reemergence of involuntary or reflex urination leading to urinary incontinence. And so that's why we work so closely with our urologists because they can do specific tests to the bladder and it's uh, just your dynamic testing basically you know how are we filling how are we emptying what are the muscles doing Um, that can give us a lot of information as far as okay is this a pelvic floor dysfunction or is this neurological is this due to some disease or damage to those nerves um, that are causing this reflex or involuntary urination so just wanted to throw that out there before we get into the nitty gritty because 
buckle up. It's so much. Um, I thought the, that it was involuntary until the age of three to five was so interesting because they, I was talking to some people when they were trying to potty train my niece and they started before she was three a little bit. And she was talking to a couple different people and they were like, no, like once my kid turned three, it was like immediate, it was fine. And I was like, that makes so much sense. That like in before they're three, if it's involuntary, it's going to be so much harder to potty train because they're not going to really have yeah, that they control. Have, no. And then they hit three and then they can start to develop that voluntary process. Yep. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Yeah. And they might be able to feel that sensation and kind of, and, and kind of feel like, oh, that is an urge to go pee kind of thing. But again, then being able to like act on it appropriately yeah. is just not there. Yeah. Very interesting. <coughs> I did want to do a little bit of a review of anatomy and physiology before we dive into the deep nitty gritty, yes. just so we all have a really good working understanding of what we're talking about. So when we start to talk about the urinary tract, there's really two components. So we have the upper tract, which is going to be your kidneys and your ureters, and then the lower tract, and your, which is your bladder and your urethra. So we are mainly focusing on the nervous system activity activities that concern the lower tract. So, because that's where we're going to see that micturition reflex occur. So the bladder is a hollow organ. It's going to function almost like a reservoir for the storage and elimination of urine. There's This bladder is made up of three layers of smooth muscle. That smooth muscle is called the detrusor, which you've heard us talk about before. So the bladder is kind of like this hollow open bowl, which then kind of funnels down into a neck. So it really looks a lot like a funnel. And at the bottom of the bladder is that little hole or that outlet into the urethra. And that's what we call the neck of the bladder. So that little hollow neck or exit is surrounded by smooth muscle known as the internal urethra. So some people debate that this is this urethral sphincter is a continuation of the detrusor. Some people say it's a completely different muscle. Uh, you can do your research and decide for yourself what you think. But regardless, we've got that internal urethral sphincter. And then we've got the pelvic floor and the external sphincters, which are kind of on the outside in circulating that urethra. And that is smooth muscle and that operates under our conscious control. So the, or un, sorry, striated muscle. So smooth muscle is under involuntary control, but that striated or skeletal muscle is under our voluntary control. So we consciously control that. Your intestines are made out of smooth muscle. Like we've kind of talked about it before, how we have that peristalsis, how our intestines and our organs need to be able to move the stomach, right? It contracts and the intestines to move everything through. That's that smooth muscle. So if you stuck, you know, if you looked under a microscope and looked at smooth muscle versus striated muscle, they would look pretty different. Mm -hmm. They would look pretty different. So mechanisms of control are a little bit different there, but just so you kind of have an idea of what muscles are doing what. Yeah. So during the storage, so when we're just hanging out, filling that bladder, both the internal and the external sphincter, sphincters are contracted to prevent that leakage. So normally that detrusor or that bladder muscle is relaxed. So that's going to allow the bladder to expand as it fills with urine. And then once the bladder is full, detrusor is going to contract to expel urine. And then um, 
those sphincters will relax as the detrusor contracts. A normal, healthy adult bladder can hold anywhere from 300 to 500 milliliters of urine for two to five hours. That's why we talk about how, you know, when we, when you come in here and see us, we're like, all right, how often are you going pee? How often are you going to the bathroom? Because if you're going every 30 minutes, we got problems. We got problems. And so a lot of, and we'll kind of get into behaviors later. Um, but you know, how we respond to those urges and when we respond have a really big impact on how we feel that urge the next time that we, that we have to go. And so you really should be able to go two to five hours. Mm -hmm. Um, I typically shoot for about two to three with most of my patients, um, between, between voids. Even if you're drinking a lot of water. Even if you're drinking a lot of water. That's the biggest thing I hear. I say, how often are you going to the bathroom? And I get, well, I drink a lot of water. Okay, that was not my question. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about what you drink, but that was not my question. That was not my question. That's not the answer I'm looking for. So a little bit of difference between male and female anatomy of that urinary tract, primarily where the urethra is concerned. So bladder's pretty much the same, but the male urethra is going to be longer. It's going to pass through the prostate gland at the base of the bladder and then through the penis, making it, like I said, a lot longer. Female urethra is much shorter, and it just exits anterior or in front of that vaginal opening. So that's the main difference between male and female. But then how they function is going to be very, very similar. And it, it's very, very complex. It's going to, yeah. It, here we go. So <laughs> many pathways. I have a really good example I'll talk about a little bit later. It, it, it talks about, like, the peeing process it calls it the pee symphony oh, wait I saw that too I love that yeah yeah and I was just like because it, it, it's so complex there's so many pathways so many brain the brain the spinal cord all of these things the peripheral nervous system all of these things are involved in this complex process mm-hmm. we've got all kinds of neurotransmitters going on so a lot of things involved a in lot this of process a lot of things happening at like bare bones tell it to you like you're five when the bladder fills that reflex is triggered end of story that's if if that's all you take away from this then (laughs) that's all that's all you need um but the again and, and we've talked about this that bladder doesn't send that first urge to go until it's about halfway full um, and so we typically see this around 250 milliliters when that um, when that detrusor muscle stays relaxed as the bladder fills that muscle starts to contract increases the pressure in the bladder right it's going to increase that pressure system Um, that is going to stimulate a lot of fibers and relay that information to the sacral spine those fibers are going to kind of modulate and kind of figure out okay what is that degree of fullness like how full are we you know we can kind of get that eh, yeah i'm kind of full or like oh my gosh it's been five hours i'm actually in physical pain at this point i need to go um, and that kind of helps us to determine how full we are 
the brain actually determines the urgency, which I thought was like really interesting. Yeah. It's just like, it's in your, it, like it's kind of in your it, head. Yeah. It's kind of in your head. So the brain determines that level of urgency and responds by sending those signals back down to the bladder, either to hold, either to continue to fill or to void. And so if that response is to void, we get some parasympathetic nervous system kicking in to contract the detrusor muscle. Again, increases that bladder pressure and then that internal sphincter opens and allows that urine to pass through and flow through the urethra. Um, We can also see, or what also happens is some pudendal nerve inhibition, which causes that external sphincter, the one under voluntary control, to relax, to allow that urine to be expelled. Um, So again, basically that bladder fills, it sends those those signals to the sacral spine, the sacral spine kind of decides, all right, what are we going to do with that information? Passes it all along up to the brain. The brain decides, okay, are we going to avoid or are we going to hold on? If we're avoiding, it's going to send those signals back down to increase that detrusor muscle contraction, relax those pelvic floor muscles and let you, let you expel that urine. Um, we do see around 50 milliliters that remain within the bladder after a normal void. And this is something that I think some of my patients get hung up on. They're like, well, I'm not empty. Like, well, I can sit there and I can just keep peeing and like, I can just, I'm like, I can push. Yeah. I can push and a little bit more comes out. Everybody can. Everybody can. Every single person on the face of this earth could sit on the toilet and dribble all day long. We don't have time to do that. We don't have time to do that. When you're on the toilet, your brain and your bladder are already in that voiding process. The sphincters are contracting, the, or this, excuse me, the sphincters are relaxing. The detrusor muscle is contracting. You're in that voiding phase. You're in that, that, that kind of switch, that kind of mode. And so even if, as you're sitting there, those muscles can, are still relaxing. So even as you're sitting there playing on your phone, Kidneys are also always working too and always producing urine. And so even if you do have more urine that's coming into the bladder, yeah, a little bit more might come out, but it's not that you're not emptying all the way. Um, So if you feel like you're empty, get up and go, get up and go. We do not have time to sit on the toilet all day. So, well, and it's almost like, so if you take a deep breath in and you just relax, breathe out. Okay. That you feel like, oh, my lungs are empty. I need to breathe in. But if you sit here and you breathe out and then you... Like you can keep breathing out air. You're never going to expel all the air from your lung, but that doesn't mean you're not breathing appropriately. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with voiding or going to the bathroom. And so like Rachel said, there's no need to sit there and push or just keep sitting there. Just if you feel empty, you're good. Get up, move on with your life. So that's a normal, healthy function. Where does that urgency, that abnormal, how does that start to come into play? So I wanted to talk about just in case peeing. Mm, yes. Because we talk about that a lot. And if you need to, rewind and go listen to the what Rachel just said again, because that's pretty complex. So if you need to, stop, listen to Take it again. Take some notes if you yeah, need to. Because <laughs> There'll be a quiz later. No, I'm kidding. Um. So like she says, as that bladder fills, it's that stretch and that press that is sending the signals to the brain. And so we get used to a certain amount of stretch and and that's when we start sending the signals is when that's full. And we go, when we're going when it's full, 
that's the signal we get used to. But if we start to pee right before we leave the house, right before we work out, right before we shower, right before we walk into a meeting or in class or right before we go out shopping because we don't like public restrooms, most of the time when we're going, it's not that bladder's not full if we're going just in case. There's Mm -hmm. a new level of stretch. It's sending new signals. So if we keep doing this over time, our bladder becomes accustomed to functioning at a lower capacity than it was or than normal. So emptying consistently before it's full, we're getting those signals to the brain that the bladder needs to be emptied when it's only partially full. This can cause those urges to get that urgency signal to get sent more frequently because the brain is now registering that new level. Also, when we keep emptying, that bladder stops filling and stretching like we talked about, and it can actually shrink. So that is why we tell you not to just in case pee. On the flip side of that, we also don't want to hold it too long either. If we are ignoring, and we you've heard us say this time and time again, ignore that first urge, respond to the second one, respond to that second urge. Well, if you're waiting until that third, fourth, or fifth urge, we can also go too far in the other direction. Now that bladder isn't going to be sending appropriate signals when you need to, and you might not have as much warning as, as you did before. It can also overstretch the bladder and then that muscle is not able to contract. If we're like super way overstretched, if those muscle fibers are barely, barely able to contract, we're not going to get as an, as an effective void as we should be getting. So ignore the first urge, respond to the second one and do not go pee just in case. Exactly. That is going to keep your bladder at a very healthy level of functioning, setting the appropriate signals at the appropriate time and drink lots of water. I love it. I love it. Okay. Now I want to talk about the pee symphony and why you should never, ever, ever kegel on the toilet. Let them have it. So We've talked about this complex pattern, and I did not come up with this analogy. I got this from CMT, Current Medical Technologies, Inc. It's somewhere in Lakeville, Massachusetts, so credit where credit's due, but I just love this analogy. So it it says urination is like a symphony, so it's very complex. We've got bladder, we've got spinal cord, we've got pelvic floor, and all of this is playing in perfect harmony with the brain as the conductor. So all the instruments understand their place, their timing, and they're just producing this beautiful, blissful urination. So if you can think about a symphony, we've got the strings, the woodwinds, everything's just flowing in beautiful harmony. And then out of nowhere, bam, electric guitar, just stepping in, (laughs) playing out of time, like not even going with the music. We've just got Sweet Child of Mine in the middle of a Mozart piece, okay? Very confusing. Everyone's lost, timing's off, production falls apart. So some of our peeing habits are like that electric guitar and it creates neurologic confusion. So the just in case is one of those, but so is Kegels and it leads to some dysfunction. So the biggest one that can be that electric guitar is the Kegels that we talked about. So bladder's filling, it's... um, the pelvic floor is contracted, everything's great. And then we go to urinate. So pelvic floor relaxed and we've got those signals. 
like Rachel said, it's all, all in that loop. But all of a sudden, we're peeing, we've got the proper signals, we're emptying, everything's great, and then boom, we've got a pelvic floor muscle contraction, which is in our brain, it's part of a whole other signal. That is part of the storage signal, not part of the emptying signal. So then everyone's freaking out and the conductor's like, oh wait, no, 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 abort mission, stop, stop the piece in the middle of the piece. And then it's like, we may not empty completely. And so the more that you do that, like doing it once, like I'll, I'll tell my patients, I'm like, you do this one time and you don't ever do it again <laughs> just to see. Cause sometimes actually having that auditory feedback of that flow of urine stopping, it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I can do that. That's what a Kegel is. And then you let go and then you never, ever, 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 ever do it again. The more that you do it, the more it's just going to mismatch those, those signalings, the more it's just going to confuse the brain and the bladder and the pelvic floor. And it can lead to a bunch of different things if you make a habit out of it. So it says typically one Kegel, if you're contracting your pelvic floor properly, not a problem. One, one, just one, one time, not one each time. No one, one time. But after doing it repeatedly, you can notice difficulty starting the flow of urine because now those signals are all messed up. Slow stream or a light stream. Frequency because you stop being able to empty completely. Feeling like you haven't completely emptied. And UTIs. We don't want that. No. We do not want that. So once you're on the toilet, just let it flow. Once you're peeing, just let it go. This goes for men and women. Just let it go. Let mm-hmm. it go. Um, this is unfortunately kind of an old school way of teaching Kegels. And again, getting that auditory feedback and that actual kind of you know, success of stopping the flow can kind of let you know, okay, yes, that's what a Kegel is. That's what that pelvic floor contraction is. This is how I do it. Um, but it is not something that we want to do more than one time ever. Yeah. Don't do it. If you do need to just confirm that you're doing that contraction appropriately, there's some other things you can try. We've talked before about like literally get a mirror and hold it next to that perennial area, do a Kegel and see if you can see that perennial lift. So that's the area between the vagina and the anal opening. See if you can see that lift. Try actually inserting a finger and see if you can feel kind of that pinch and squeeze and lift of the finger when you do the contraction. Or I saw this one. I thought this was interesting. You can really actually like sit on a towel and have some feedback. So that pressure from the towel gives you a little bit of feedback. So There's a lot of good alternatives, but that's why we don't ever want to Kegel while we're peeing. In fact, if you are someone who has not an overactive pelvic floor, just a kind of a hypotonic or normal functioning pelvic floor, Rachel and I will actually teach Kegels as a way to suppress the urge. Mm -hmm. And so when you're on the toilet, you don't want to suppress that urge. You want to just let that process happen. Yep. Yep. So another thing that can impact this this cycle um this urgency loop it's called bradley's loop i don't even know if we said that yet <laughs> this is called bradley's loop yeah this is called bradley's loop that and i think we've talked about it before but yes just that signaling pathway from the uh from the bladder up to the brain another thing that can impact this is rushing and running to the bathroom which i think is was so fascinating when i first learned about it so the bladder is really smart and it learns and it adapts. We've talked about this. We've gone over this. We know this. 
The bladder also likes things to be the same every single time. It's very picky in case you haven't picked up on that yet. It's like, no, this is how we do things. If you do this one time, I'm going to want to do it again. It's like if you give a mouse a cookie kind of thing. And so as you start rushing and running to the bathroom, if you start freaking out, your bladder's going to start freaking out. If you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, if I don't get to the bathroom right this absolute second, I'm going to pee my pants and I need to run and I need to rush and I need to sprint and I need to rip my clothes off as I go. Guess what? Your bladder's thinking, okay, now, now we're ready now. And then you start leaking along the way. But if you stay nice and calm and you just like, yeah, whatever, y'all yeah, get there eventually, the bladder's like, oh no, we're, we're okay. We're fine. Are you sure? Is everything okay? Do we need to go right now? No. Okay, fine. Are you sure? Okay, I'll calm down. And so if you rush and run, not only is it going to increase that feeling of emergency, it's just going to perpetuate that cycle, but it's also going to make it harder to control too, because now you've got all this urine sloshing all around in the bladder. The detrusor muscle is starting to contract. It's starting to spasm. So now we have less pressure or sorry, more pressure, less room in the bladder. We've got all this urine sloshing around. And then if you add any sort of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction on top of that, now we've just created this perfect storm for incontinence so calm down it's okay take a breath take a breath we've talked about it sit breathe do some calf raises get your mind off of it start thinking about something else and then get up and calmly walk to the bathroom calmly 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 i like to think of the bladder like a spoiled rotten little kid if, if we give in every time that it throws a temper tantrum we're gonna be left with a spoiled rotten little brat that we've got no control over right and so if you are consistent with your input to the bladder and your input to that child, hopefully, in theory, things are a little bit easier to control. That kiddo is not going to throw as many tem temper tantrums. And if they do, you know how to handle it and they know what the consequences are. So it's going to be less likely to last a long period of time. And again, the bladder is the same way. So all of these behaviors can, and th these are these are behaviors. That That's the good news. That's mm -hmm. the good thing is that these are voluntary actions that you have full control over. You can respond to that second urge. You cannot pee just in case. You can stop doing Kegels on the toilet and just let yourself pee. You can walk nice and calmly to the bathroom, even if in the back of your mind you're screaming. It's uh, These are things that are in your control, which is the good thing. It means you can fix things. Urge incontinence has kind of become one of my favorite things to treat because sometimes... Like, like it's crazy. People think, because it feels like a huge deal because yeah. it's so life altering. They think like they're completely wetting their pants on the way to the toilet. And so it feels like such a huge deal. And we can just tweak a couple small things and people see drastic improvements. And, and almost immediately yeah. too. And I think that in a lot of times there's an associated frequency of urination with, with urgency as well. And it's like, okay, well, if we eliminate those just in case peas and we um, eliminate, you know, responding to that first urge, we're going to cut out like at least four or five times a day that you're going at least. And so that's going to really improve frequency. And then you get better control of that urgency and we get more normal, more normalized signaling and response and voids. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an easy, easy thing to control yeah. you, once, I, once you know, right. once you know what to do. It's been really like a, a pretty common pattern I've seen is we'll start those behavioral modifications day one and we're mm -hmm. taking care of a large chunk of it. And then it's like 
once we restore pelvic floor muscle function, that takes care of whatever the behavioral modification didn't take care of. And it's like, if we can get people on board with that whole picture, then we're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like potty training all over again. Yeah. It's a good time. So fun. (laughs) But yeah, it it all goes back to that brain being in charge, being the in charge. Wow. That brain being the conductor, that brain being in charge and having the ability to override some of the sacral, some of the other signaling, like it's all in your head, which is a good thing a good because thing. it means you can control it with yep. some, some time and some work and some dedication. You control your bladder, not the other way around. Exactly. And if you have to sit there while you're doing your calf races and yell out at your bladder, do it. I'm convinced that it works. I haven't seen any research that says that talking and yelling and swearing at your bladder helps, but I'm convinced that it does. So yeah. go for it. Very you just sit and you yell at it. You say, no, ma'am, we are not doing this right now. This is not how the PSA girls told me to go peace. This is not what we're doing. Today is not the day. I am not the one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so I that's hope Bradley's loop. We'll post the article if you are interested in reading it. It's like 33 pages, I think. It's pretty long. It's good it's, information. It was good for me to read it. Yeah. And to just refresh some of this information, dust off some of that. If you're some of that neuroscience. Yeah. If you're medically minded at all, it's a really, really good article. If you're Dr. Sawyer, it's probably gonna be like an easy like yeah. nighttime it's read. Like, <laughs> just oh, to relax I fall from the asleep. Day. <laughs> yeah. If you're me, you're you're gonna have a headache after. Right. But like going to all those I'm like doing like rapid eye movement trying to like find where I stored all that information right where, like, it, where, where is, it? is it yeah it's in there somewhere I know it's there in <sighs> there somewhere finally found it yep well I, that's Bradley's loop again really complicated stuff and I'm sure within the next 20 years we're gonna discover more things that we didn't know yeah. about the bladder it's it's complicated now voiding as in go number two pooping is not that complicated whatsoever you feel the urge you go the end it's yeah it's just basically all like stretch responses <laughs> that's pretty much it so um yeah that is an urge you don't ignore no you respond to that you one respond immediately immediately you still don't want to run don't rush but you respond but you to respond that to that you one. respond to that one all right do you have a patient one? Oh, i do and i'm so excited Ooh, let's have it. okay so this patient came to me after she saw, she was having just a lot of pelvic pain, pelvic pressure, a lot of problems, and she terrified of doctors. So didn't go to her doctor until it was pretty much unbearable. She goes to see her OBG and was told, you have to have a hysterectomy. And she was like, I've never had surgery in my life. I don't want a hysterectomy. Can I do literally anything else? And then she was told, fine you can do pelvic floor physical therapy and then have a hysterectomy and I was like and she comes to me and she tells me all this and she's like super freaked out and I'm like let's just see what's going on so we do an exam and really like a lot of her problems she was having pain with periods and then pelvic pain and the thought I guess was some of that was from uterine issues she had a raging pelvic floor overactivity and a slight prolapse, like maybe a grade one. Did pelvic floor physical therapy, and she's fine. No pain, no problem. Went back to see her doctor, not having a hysterectomy. Yes. And she was so, I mean, I 
when I, she's been discharged now because she's yes. literally fine. And she was like, thank you for saving me from having a hysterectomy. Oh. And I was like, excuse me while I go cry in the bathroom. Tears oh of joy. Gosh. Just She was so happy because she just had this, she had no desire to have surgery. Yeah. No desire. And so she kind of had to do some self-advocation there. And she did. And she came here and she did the work and did not have to have surgery, feels fantastic, can do everything. And she's like young, active, renovates houses, like does all these oh crazy gosh. things and does it now with she no don't have time problem. for surgery? Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. So, that is such a huge win, especially because she was so scared in the first mm-hmm. place and was just like, I really don't, I want to do literally anything else. And you were able to fix, fix her symptoms yeah. and her pain. That's amazing. That's a big win. It was, it was fun. That's really fun. Do you have a patient one? Yes. So mine, this is a patient I've been working with not super long. And it kind of goes along the lines of of Bradley's loop and what we talked about today. So she had been having um, urgency. And this was actually a while ago. And I may have talked about her before. um, But she used to be a nurse. And we've talked about our nurses are definitely they've you can't always respond to that second urge and it's it's definitely a process when you're when you're a nurse kind of trying to find that that voiding schedule balance and what had happened was she used to work nights and so she'd work the night shift and then she'd sleep during the day well her urgency was like so backwards and so you should be like we said about every two to five hours ish during the day at night you should be asleep you should not have to get up in the middle of the night to go pee. After 65, it's normal to get up once. That is it. So if you have that problem, come see us. Anyway, and so she was, because she had used to work nights, her schedule was like basically flipped. And so once she retired, she was getting up every two hours during the during the nighttime, but was maybe going once or twice during the day. And so we literally got her on a voiding schedule and this is the only time that I have my patients go just in case or go when they don't feel that urge is when we're trying to restore that urge. And that has come from, you know, a lot of other things going on as well. And so she, we got her on avoiding schedule was going like every two to three hours during the daytime, even if she didn't feel that urge, you know, she would still go and still try. And then during the nighttime, we worked on all of the urge suppression techniques and it didn't take very long for things to get flipped and right back on track again, where she was able to sleep all the way through the night and was going like the normal two to three, four hours during the day. Um, So again, that just goes to show you how that that plasticity of the bladder of how it learns and how it adapts and how we can train it to do certain things and whether that's good training or whether that's bad training like there's there's a lot of things that we can do even if it seems like oh I've been dealing with this for so many years it's just and plasticity what a good neuro word Rachel thank you Dr. Sawyer would be so proud I'm so proud (laughs) yeah just like we talked about the bladder, those signals getting sent too soon if that bladder isn't allowed to stretch and fill. For a lot of our people who are holders, they hold it and hold it, hold it. So teachers, nurses, that bladder can actually become overstretched. Yep. And we can, instead of getting signals more frequently, we can get signals less than we should. Yep. And so it has to be retrained yep. in a different way. And that's where that voiding schedule is very, very appropriate and comes in handy. I love that though. That's awesome. Yeah, it worked great. It that's worked so great. great. Yep. Yep. 
Alrighty. All right. I have a board question. And I think this is a good one because this is realistically a little bit of a differential diagnosis you would have to do as a physical therapist or a traditional orthopedic therapist or whatever. So I love this question. A physical therapist is assessing a patient with complaints of right flank pain and low back pain over the last year. The patient has a history of cholecystitis. The therapist decides to perform a physical examination of the abdominal region and begins with Murphy's sign for cholecystitis. Murphy's <laughs> test is performed in which abdominal quadrant? Mm. Left upper quadrant, right upper quadrant, right lower quadrant, or left lower quadrant. Pause while I Google what Murphy's test is. <gasps> Rachel. <laughs> I'm going to read the question again while Rachel Googles what Murphy's test is for Murphy's sign. A physical therapist is assessing a patient with complaints of right flank pain and low back pain over the last year. The patient has a history of cholecystitis. The therapist decides to perform a physical examination of the abdominal region and begins with Murphy's sign for cholecystitis. Murphy's test is performed in which abdominal quadrant? Left or A, left upper quadrant, B, right upper quadrant, C, right lower quadrant, or D, left lower quadrant? This is good because you have to know what cholecystitis is. You have to know what Murphy's sign, Murphy's test is. Which I know now. And then you have to know your anatomy. So I love, love, love this question. That is a good, a good question. So I'm going to start. Murphy's sign is a test for cholecystitis. We basically got that from the question. And so cholecystitis is a blockage or impaction of gallstones in the cystic duct which leads to infection or inflammation of the gallbladder. So we're looking at, so now once you know that, you're like, okay, where is the gallbladder? So go back to your anatomy. And if you think about where the gallbladder is, let's just go through. So A, the left upper quadrant. What is in the left upper quadrant? The left upper quadrant is going to contain the spleen and the stomach. So I don't love A as an answer choice. B, the right upper quadrant. Well, the right upper quadrant is going to have the gallbladder. C, the right lower quadrant. That's going to have our small intestines, appendix, and large intestine. So I don't love C. D, left lower quadrant. That's going to have our small intestine and large intestine. So right upper quadrant is going to have gallbladder, liver, pancreas, and kidney. So I really like um, B right upper quadrant for the answer I concur <laughs> I was getting it confused with McBurney's and I was oh, like wait McBurney's that's the Murphy's appendix. yes yep. McBurney's is the appendix which would be the right lower quadrant there you go but yeah that is a good question yeah that is a good question because sometimes doctors will send patients to us as kind of like a differential diagnosis mm -hmm. it's like they've got this funky like I've literally got a script a script a script <laughs> we're doing great today for right quadrant pain yeah and so it's like before you do an internal exam especially if they're not having pelvic symptoms let's roll out some of these other things some of the first. inflammation of some of those other mm -hmm. those other systems those other organ systems so yeah so there's your board question beautiful all right you guys well your psa this week is to stop going pee just in case um and if you do Come see us. Come see us. Come hang out. All right. 
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today. We'll link that article. Yeah. If you want to go read it. Yeah. If you want to go make your brain tired. (laughs) But yeah. So we will see you guys next week. Bye.